Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name is John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore police sergeant. In the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we are joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, their families, and the community. We'll also be discussing issues in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Check out our daily articles on our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. He's retired from the Dayton Police Department. He's also an author. He spent many years working homicide, where he investigated and arrested serial killers, including one who was motivated by racial hatred. And he's coming up on the Law Enforcement Today Show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725 online at helpforourheroes.com. The Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for substance abuse, addiction, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Plus, they offer complete treatment for mental health issues for those without substance abuse problems. Finally, our heroes have access to a world-class program for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and more. In addition to multiple rehabilitation and holistic treatments for all those that suffer from substance abuse problems, the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center is a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program where law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the separate and highly specialized treatment they need. Their program features first responders and veterans helping first responders and veterans. Got questions? They have the answers at the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at helpforourheroes.com. Calling us from Ohio, retired police lieutenant Dan Baker on the phone. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Law Enforcement Today's show. Great to be here. Thank you. It is a pleasure. Exciting story. Uh, for those, obviously, who don't know Dan, you're just introduced to him the first time right now. He's a retired police lieutenant from Dayton, Ohio Police Department. Remember a few weeks ago, we had Dole Burke on. Well, he had the pleasure of being his supervisor way, way back in the day. And I think uh, Dan said something in the email that Doyle may have given him a gray hair or two way, way back in the day. He certainly did, and I imagine I wasn't the only guy that he terrorized me. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I had a couple sergeants, God bless them, that when I was a rookie police, before you know what's going on, and you're just so full of energy and vigor and everything else and messing up left and right. By the way, I say that, I'm talking about making mistakes, doing your job. We're not talking about corruption or stuff like that. No. no that, that, that's not tolerated at all. And I'm sure I gave them more than a gray hair or two. Uh, before we get into the conversation, since you retired, you've also written a book. What's the name of that book? It's called The Blood in the Streets, Racism, Riots, and Murders in the Heartland of America. And the book deals with the uh, most uh, violent period in urban American history from 1965 to 1975. And Dayton being a medium-sized city was certainly caught up in that in the terrible ways that have dramatically affected the city and our population even till today. Yeah, these scars don't go away. Not even, some say overnight, but not in a year, two years, 10 years, 20, 30 years. They, they take a couple generations oftentimes to disappear. Yes, uh, not only was it violent because we uh, had four riots in three years, 
And uh, the first riot required a thousand National Guard, which uh, in 1966 was uh, neither the police or the uh, National Guard were prepared or trained for what we faced. But uh, later on in the story we tell, uh, which continued in Dayton in the 70s, was a serial killer that was uh, that hated the forced busing of uh, school children as part of a federal school desegregation order. And, you know, of course, that's back in the news and now today because of all the politics. But uh, it, this particular individual then added to the, the problems of that 10-year period that I mentioned because he became a lone wolf killer and uh, shot over 30 black men at random on the street after midnight for over four summits before he was finally apprehended. And they called him, I believe, the Midnight Slayer. Right. Uh, he, he picked up the moniker pretty quickly from the uh, low-key news media. And yeah. the, of course, we were without all the stuff we have today, so that he got the nickname pretty quick. And he, he, wreaked, he wreaked terror on the city. At the, same, at the same time, when our homicide rate for a city our size, of 270,000 at that time, uh, was running well over 100 murders a year. And um, it just all that violence compounded with the um, dissension associated with the riots and the desegregation of public schools. Uh, was fertile ground for a person who uh, hated desegregation. The name of the book is Blood in the Streets. Where can people buy it and get more information about it? Well, it's in, it's in, it's in bookstores and pretty much everywhere, but uh, the easy places usually are the Amazon and any other online outlet, Amazon.com. And I also have a website. Uh, perhaps you'll be able to post that. But at that website, um, they can they can actually hear the confession of this particular killer. Uh, I had that. My wife and I wrote this book uh, in, and published it in 2014 uh, because we both grew up in the city of Dayton. Uh, she's an African-American female, and, of course, we didn't know each other back in the back in the days, 60s, but she was actually living on the, the segregated west side uh, where most of the black population lives. And she saw what went on with the police and the community um, in a different perspective as me, being a young, white, 22- or 23-year-old cop. Uh, pretty naive at the time, involved in a uh, totally unprepared uh, response to the uh, to the riots and troubles that went on in the 60s. We're talking about the 60s, and part of me wants to go, that was so long ago. But the truth is, I was a, I was a little boy when I remember they started the, the desegregation and the busing, and I remember the, the upheaval about it. I didn't quite understand because I was just a little bit too young. And people might think, well, you know, this is ancient history. Well, the truth is, it's not. Uh, and uh, a lot of what we talk, we're going to talk about, the racial unrest, uh, the violence that occurred as a result of all that, uh, is still going on today. And part of me says, we've come a long way. We've accomplished a lot of things. We're not the same country we were back then, obviously. But we're still dealing with a lot of same issues, or at least I'm hearing about them all the time. Yeah, it, it seems to be... a. Uh hot topic right now because of uh, renewed conversations. There's still an awful lot of misunderstanding about it, though, because all, all desegregation efforts weren't the same. For example, you take a city like Dayton of 270,000 people, uh, 200,000 were white uh, race mostly, and 70,000 were black who were segregated on Dayton's west side. And, I, and to make matters worse, uh, it was a physical separation. There's a riv- two rivers that run through the middle of the city separated by thir- with 13 bridges. And uh, so even going to the West Side was uh, sort of a uh, ultra-negative sort of a situation for many whites. So, But uh, the desegregation plan in Dayton involved one school district, not, not a region of school districts. 
and it just made worse the matter even worse because it literally pit, pit black and white against the, each other. Those who hated it, for example. And it, uh, this is where it strikes me as odd. And again, I said I was a little boy when it occurred. You know, I grew up most in a military family, and I grew up mostly all over the place, but most of my childhood was spent in Norfolk, Virginia, and everybody was military I knew, and we had people from all races, all walks of life, all ethnicities, all religious backgrounds, and, and none of this made sense to me. Uh, back then, it certainly didn't, and to be honest with you, today, it still doesn't. It is frustrating, isn't it? And uh, uh, since the, since all the troubles in the 60s and the serial killer and uh, all those related events through the 70s and desegregation, uh, the city's population has actually gone down from 270,000 to 140,000. Yeah, that's, a, it, that's uh, similar to Baltimore. When I was a rookie police in Baltimore, we were right around a million people. Last I heard, that was like 1980, and last I heard now, there are about 670,000 people, but the murders, the total number of murders don't change. Right. Well, one of the things that hurt Dayton so much was the uh, the white flight right away, because since it was a, a city, the city of Dayton public schools only involved in the segregation, whites that chose to or were able, were able to uh, fled the city during that the whole desegregation time and then as the violence increased on the with homicides and the midnight slayer um fear was just rampant in the city and people just booked out of there because um it caused what white flight really stripped the city of an awful lot and then on top of that then you had all the economic uh, fallout that came with it when when people left and uh, there was red redlining on home loans and all the things that go with uh segregated activity one of the things you brought up, uh, the media is great at giving serial killers nicknames. They don't do it um, the same degree with everyday violent people, especially when you have like uh, a hitman for a drug organization that's been linked with 10 or 15 murders. You can't prove them most of the time. You do your best, but they don't give them nicknames. But they're really good at coming up with really jazzy, almost overly romanticized, sexy nicknames like Midnight Slayer. Uh, and these people oftentimes are nowhere near as exciting as the nicknames are given, are they? No, he absolutely was unexciting. And uh, if, if you listen to the confession on the website, people will hear his monotone, flat, dull um, voice. He was an absolutely plain, milquetoast sort of a guy, uh, but he was uh, uh, clearly obsessed with the issue of the busing because one of his children had been harassed at school, and he just absolutely exploded over that matter and began it within a week. One of the things I do know, and I'm not an expert, you know, I've never worked homicide. I've worked in many homicides. I've never, never assigned a homicide unit. Uh, there are murders that you would say, okay, I can kind of understand why someone snapped. I can understand someone had bad five minutes of their life, overreacted. I'm not saying it's okay. But there are other ones you go, that's just baffling. And then when you talk about these serial killers, and I, I see all these investigative shows about them, they seem to have a, a warped sense of self-worth and they're going to do something in their mind that's going to make them be remembered forever. And one of the things that I think you're going to agree with me on, I don't ever do, is I never mention their real name. Because I just don't believe in giving them any any publicity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good practice. In this particular individual, I spent a lot of time researching his life. I mean, he's a very, actually, we both came from um, families from uh, hardcore Appalachia, where my parents were from, 
and 50 miles down the road is where he was born. And we basically uh, grew up in Dayton in a similar way. And the story kind of tracks his life and my life. And somehow, ultimately, we end up together at the scene of a murder in the federal building when he finally consummates his last murder. And uh, there we are face to face after all, all this time of looking for him. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. You don't want to miss our conversation with retired Lieutenant Dan Baker. We're going to talk about investigating and capturing a serial killer. Uh, that was motivated by racial hatred and many other things. It's all coming your way on the Law Enforcement Today show. We'll be right back. Finally, our heroes have access to a world-class program for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and more. The Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for substance abuse, addiction, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Plus, they offer complete treatment for mental health issues for those without substance abuse problems. In addition to multiple rehabilitation and holistic treatments for all those suffering from substance abuse problems, the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformation Treatment Center is a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program where law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the separate and highly specialized treatment they need. Got questions? They have the answers at the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at helpforourheroes.com. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today's show is brought to you in part by Operational Police Detective Services, the top firm in Maryland for security, armed police, canine services, and armed helicopter escort. They also offer complete, thorough, and in-depth protection and security surveys. OPPS personnel are highly trained local, state, and federal off-duty police officers. Based out of Baltimore, Maryland, they can accommodate assignments throughout the East Coast. For more information, call 443-790-2511 or visit OPPSProtection.com. That's OPPSProtection.com. Return to our conversation with Lieutenant, retired Lieutenant Dan Baker of Dayton, Ohio Police Department, uh, author, and spent many years in homicide. Before we went to break, Dan, you were talking about how this serial killer, the Midnight Slayer, uh, was the nickname he was given, uh, that you and him, you had a lot of parallels in your life, at least from family background, and then you wound up with some sort of meeting or confrontation. Well, what happened, yes, that's right, uh, John. He, he had shot over 30 black men literally at random in drive-by style. He had a shotgun that uh, he would just stick out the car window and, shoot somebody and he always did them between midnight and 4 a.m. after he uh, drank a lot and had smoked a little weed and he was a a very plain guy with no other real life he had a family but was separated and divorced many times from that particular family and why am i not uh, surprised yeah yeah he was just at random uh when he felt like it as he said you know on the on the tape you can listen to he just got in the car late at night after he got off work and drove across one of the bridges that I previously mentioned into the west side and just drove up and down the street till he saw someone or some one night he would shoot three, some night he would shoot one. And he would every summer he would do five or six or eight, whatever happened to be the, the number for him, and then just, just drive away. Now, he never came in contact physically with the victim. And, of course, in the days prior to DNA 
And the fact he used a shotgun with multiple different kinds of loads, or we didn't have uh, the rifling you get with uh, handguns and those kinds of things. And those, those low-tech days, it was a, just a gumshoe investigation. And there was so much misinformation about his description and uh, sometimes uh, the, the vehicle descriptions. And it was very, very difficult to track him down. A lot of things, we went through a lot of the old-fashioned detail in the research for the book and, and put it in there. Um, for example, you couldn't even run his license plate simply. You, that was all in printed material you had to get from the Bureau for Motor Vehicles. So it was uh, it was hard, and the old the old fashioned way of relying on informants didn't work with this guy because he was so such a loner. He didn't associate with anybody, and he and he looked like so many other men in the fifties or sixties. Black hair, plastic, black frame glasses everybody wore those kind of glasses in those days like the buddy and, holly type glasses those sort of deals yeah i mean it just uh, he, he was as plain as he could be and uh, he painted his car and he tried to do a couple of other things what was weird about this guy though when i when we wrote the book we filed some freedom of information uh, reports for the with the fbi and doj and found out that he he had been tracked by the fbi from 1962 to 66 uh, because of some menacing letters he had written uh, regard to uh, uh, Attorney uh, Kennedy about J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, however, the police... Even well, that's FBI, one way to get the FBI's attention back in the day. I'm no expert in that either, but yeah. they were rather protective well, of that guy. Right. Well, they certainly didn't pay attention to anything he was doing in our city. In fact, when our police chief, out of so much frustration after a few years, asked where the FBI specifically for help, and they said, you know what, you need to rely on your state agencies to help you. Uh, and the Civil Rights Division, we, I have the actual quote in the book, says, uh, now you go back to your state civil rights, see if they can help you. So we received zero help. So when he finally shot his last person, he decided to walk into the federal building with a handgun this time and murdered the school desegregation expert in the federal court building. So not only the, was he a serial killer, he wrapped up his career in that respect. Did you guys at that point have any idea who it was, or was it still a mystery? Total mystery, but we had a composite. The composite identikits had been around for a little while, so we had thrown one of those together. And he was so plain, but nevertheless, uh, we did have a composite. So my partner and I happened to be around the corner from the federal building that particular Friday afternoon, and we responded to the scene and ran right up, right up to the uh, scene and up to where he was in the marshal, U.S. Marshal's office. The FBI wasn't happy that we had intruded into their sanctum there, but they, they left because they had asked him only about the federal murder, and they paid no attention to he might even be our guy. It was clear to us he was a very close match, and um, we uh, had a rights waiver with us. We uh, confiscated a tape recorder off somebody's desk. And he basically said when we walked in the room, we told him we were dating homicide detectives. He says, I know, he says, I know why you're here. So we, you'll hear on that 13-minute tape a uh, rights waiver, and we had to t- make a hurry-up press on him to get him to confess to something early, something in the middle, and something toward the end of his shooting spree. And that takes a lot. It, that is not a skill set that's easily developed. And quite often, for people who... 
watch like Investigation Discovery. My wife and I watch a lot of it. Uh, Rod Demery is one of our favorites. Joe Kennan is another one that's a favorite. Oh, yeah. You know, and right. when these guys sit down to interview someone or interrogate someone, they have a game plan already. They've thought it out, and, and they're very good at what they do. So for you and your partner to all just throw together an interrogation off the cuff, that takes a lot of skill and a lot of experience. Well, that and a little bit of uh, <laughs> streetwise con stuff, I guess. Yeah. The co- cops learn how to talk to people because you have to. So in the middle of all of this confusion, you hear this quiet explanation of the rights. And we were just chomping at the bit to talk to him until he, but when he signed it, we moved on. And um, he's and still in monotone tones. He, he clearly just explains how several nights he just drove by and shot and missed and drove back and tried again, how he killed people. He killed seven of those 30 that he shot. And uh, he was so monotone about the whole thing. And then when the FBI comes in 14 minutes later, uh, they were shocked to see us in the U.S. Marshal's cell with a tape recorder. I'll bet. Uh, that, did, that wasn't happy for them. But we moved on, and we kept the tape, and we built our all of our cases. So uh, uh, That's pretty it's quite amazing. an exciting time. It's a pretty amazing because... And you can fill the gaps for this one. Investigating homicides, most often, and I don't know what the percentage is, most often, often the, the person who kills someone else is someone that is closely connected to the other person, a family member, a relative, spouse, right. boyfriend, girlfriend. There's a connection. So when you find out who the victim is, you start looking at who they know, who's the last to see them, and then you start getting into all the technical things they have nowadays that we didn't have back in the day. But when you have a serial killer, and it's a total stranger, shooting and killing total strangers with something as innocuous as a shotgun that's like that's like having a major red ball how do you begin to solve that one well we we went through a lot of a lot of effort but again in the low-tech days everything was manual for example we sent someone up to the bureau of motor vehicles in columbus ohio based on the make of car we had often seen it some most of these shootings and came back with all of the makes of cars for a three-county area with our county and around us. And we had over a 1,000 of those makes in that particular year range. And we just started going back trying to find those cars in our spare time in the evenings, working overtime and other times. With, and with other, we pulled in many, many other detectives to help. So it was a long, wild thing. That was one crazy thing that we tried that... Uh, and, of course, you would track down one car and find out it's been traded three times. So there you that go. We're going to take a short so, break. We are talking with retired Lieutenant Dan Baker. We're talking about homicide investigation. We're talking in particular about the uh, the investigation and apprehension of the Midnight Slayer. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. For the most professional, complete security and protection services that uses only the most highly trained off-duty police, contact Operational Police Protective Services. Every business, school, and location where groups of people gather can also benefit from a complete, thorough, and in-depth protection and security survey. Contact Operational Police Protective Services. They can accommodate assignments throughout the East Coast. For more information, call 443-790-2511 or visit OPPSProtection.com. That's OPPSProtection.com. If you've missed past episodes of the Law Enforcement Today show, never fear. You can listen to them online. Just go to our website 
lawenforcementtoday.com or download our free app, also available on our website. That's lawenforcementtoday.com. Returning our conversation with retired Lieutenant Dan Baker from Dayton, Ohio Police Department, also author, and we're talking about investigating this serial killer known as or called the Midnight Slayer. And to recap, for those who are just tuning in, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, this man shot 30 men and killed seven of them. And it was motivated by racial hatred and really instigated by what was happening back then with uh, desegregation. And in their minds, these killers, it makes sense to them why they do this. And I think everybody else's mind, even particularly the homicide investigators, you're probably thinking, this is not logical at all. It makes no sense whatsoever. No, and it, 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 the, just a quick story about how he did it. He walks into the federal building, which in 1975 wasn't necessarily highly secure, but the uh, security guard just motioned him around the table since he didn't carry anything. And he asked where Dr. Glatt's office was, who did the, the, the expert. And the guy just directs him around because it's like 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. And he goes down the hallways looking for this, di- this man's name. And he sees uh, Dr. Glatt sitting in an office with an open door with a secretary taking dictation. And this uh, particular midnight flare suspect says in a very calm voice, are you Dr. Glatt? And Dr. Glatt spins around in his chair and says, why, yes, I am. And he says, God told me to kill you. And he fired six shots, uh, neck, head, um, upper torso, um, and Glad died before he got to the hospital. It's so horrifying. He was, it's it's he, horrifying he did, to hear that. It, it, yeah. And the guy's just sitting there doing his job. It, right. That's what he was doing, just a man doing his job. He'd only been there a month, and uh, and things had triggered so much to where uh, this particular killer just decided to go step on the lion's tail straight into the federal building. And um, fortunately, he was apprehended as he left. And, and, of course, Dr. Glatt never, uh, never was able to speak again after that, and he's uh, passed away right away. So he, this, this particular killer was uh, determined to be uh, sane to stand trial. He had five psychiatric examinations. Three of the five said he was sufficient to stand trial. And he ultimately pled guilty on all these multiple charges of state and federal. Since federal had him in basic custody from the beginning of the arrest, uh, he served all of his time in federal prisons and died in the nineties. Well, I'm not. I'm not sorry to hear he died. I'm sorry that uh, to hear that he got to live so many years in incarceration. And uh, he did. And that that has always that has always bothered me. And I, I don't want to get into a debate about capital punishment. But one of the things that that just annoys me to no end, Dan, and I'm sure you will agree. People say, "Well, they'll never see the light of day again." And I said, "Well, guess what." What about these lifers who have nothing to lose that are murderers? And what about the corrections officers that got to work around them every day? What about the nurses that have come in there and work? What about the social workers and the teachers? And what about the young kid who gets locked up for something? It's got to be his cellmate. Yeah, just because he's incarcerated doesn't mean he can't pose a risk to other people. Absolutely. Well, the legacy of this kind of guy almost gets validated sometimes that uh, that he kills and he, he doesn't pay the ultimate price and uh it, it may send the wrong message to some people and uh especially twisted minds who think well you know this guy didn't get the death penalty i mean i'm moving on not that they think clearly 
No, they and they don't think logically, but they also many of them tend to think I'm going to be famous and I'll be known in in their marginalized life where they'll accomplish nothing. They'll never be known for anything. This is their way of getting some notoriety and in their mind becoming famous. Uh, and that was the, the case with a guy in South Carolina uh, who who was racially motivated murdering those people at church. I won't give his name. Uh, there are other people. And even back as far as Charles Manson with his wanting to create a race war based off murder, these cats are out of their gourds. They make no sense whatsoever. Yeah, and I often wondered if this particular individual thought that others may sympathize with him. But he was so so low-key and so shy and so understated. He would, he was the, like the person that could work at a job. He worked at gas stations a lot of the time. He, he's hardly remembered by anybody. He was just there, kind of like a, a person inside of a shadow or something. And he had no, um, no connections to the outside. It had a great deal of trouble, uh, sadly, with uh, his children. Who, by the way, most turned out very well. I'm glad to hear that. I was going to ask how the kids were. Well, it's funny. Uh, uh, six months ago, my wife and I were at a, at a restaurant, and someone uh, called our names out. And it was one of his sons. He'd, he'd read the book. No kidding. And he walked up to my wife and says, uh, and called her by name because he recognized her picture from the back of the book. And he says, uh, I want to thank you for what you did. He said, my dad was a monster. Yeah. And that, that, that's probably the best explanation you can come up with. It, it makes no sense, whatever. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, we talked about how much harder it is to investigate serial killers where there's no connection between the killer and the victim. And, and when the only connection between the different victims is that they're all male and they're all the same race, that's got to make it even harder. It did, because it, plus it adds such a fear factor to the, to the killings. And uh, he, he was totally indiscriminate about where he shot his victims. He shot a man, a preacher coming out of a church. Um, and he, he shot young people, no, no children, no, no teenagers. Uh, and he, uh, just people out doing a job, a guy delivering papers or a guy at a gas station. Wherever he chose, his victim looked like prey that was visible. Um, he just, just did it. He just acted. So if he and saw he the did. opportunity, that's when he reacted and he just did it. He just did it. There's no, other, other than his hatred, there was no other motivating factor. There's nothing in there. What I'm, what I'm getting at is like with the Beltway snipers, this guy was doing this to cover up wanting to kill his ex-wife. And he was randomly picking out people of every yeah. race, walk, sex, gender, didn't matter. Uh, your yeah. killer was picking people of the same race and same gender. Yeah, the the only thing that I came across that was kind of unusual, he may have had some race confusion of his own, um, because when he died in prison, he had his race changed to say white Hispanic, or Hispanic, I'm sorry. Okay. And uh, and I heard from a family member earlier that it's possible he was part Indian, supposedly. So I, maybe he had some race confusion in his life, but I don't think so. I think it was driven by some of the hatred he grew up around in the hardcore Appalachia, and then the then his he was ill-equipped to come here. Most of his family was illiterate. He he had gone to seventh grade, so he could read. And everybody came to him for their their mail. He couldn't even he helped the whole family. And uh, I think it just become a burden to this guy. And he had menial jobs he couldn't hold. And it just he just never was able to succeed at anything. 
and the victims' families, those that um, survived and those who did not, uh, was there anything you took away from your memories of dealing with them that stood out? Well, just the overwhelming unpredictability and sadness associated. And what I saw it most profound is when we finally did the lineups of uh, uh, the Midnight Slayer along with uh, some other people to have him picked out from an identification standpoint standing on a stage. Uh, we would have groups of people in. And to see that many people in groups of three, ten here, ten there, all with the same thing happening to their lives with their family member, brought together by this guy up on the stage. It just, it was it was unre- unbelievable because these people did not know each other, and they're here to see, to pick out the guy. And unfortunately, the, their, their common denominators are linked by violence and uh, right. a death for some and... and horrific injuries for others and based solely on how they looked uh, this is the law enforcement Today show we are talking with retired police lieutenant dan baker also author of the book blood in the streets i believe is the name of the book we'll talk more about the book we'll talk more about the investigation and capture of the serial killer known as a midnight slayer in just a few moments this is law enforcement Today show we'll be right back this portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. If you've missed past episodes of the Law Enforcement Today show, never fear. You can listen to them online. Just go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, or download our free app, also available on our website. That's lawenforcementtoday.com. Back to our conversation with retired Lieutenant Dan Baker on the Law Enforcement Today show. We worked homicide for many years in Dayton, Ohio. We're talking about the investigation and apprehension of the serial killer known as the Midnight Slayer. There's other ones we could talk about, Dan. We'll have to have you back uh, in the future to talk more about those. One of the things that, thanks to television, all these CSI shows and everything else, is people tend to think that, A, murders are solved in an hour, and B, that every murder has uh, physical evidence like DNA and fingerprints and uh, blood matches and all these things. And the truth is, many don't. I, I can tell you the amount of times that I've had fingerprints were taken off of a gun that a murderer used, and that amounts to zero. I've had one come off of a piece of ammunition brass. It's mm-hmm. very rare. Yes, and in the, it's, it's absolutely correct, and it's, it's not all, uh, as, as it seems, in a one-hour show. During my, my second career, I actually was the executive director of the Law Enforcement Innovation Center and the National Forensic Academy at the University of Tennessee in the, the, uh, in the late, mid-2000s. And I was really, really fully introduced to forensic evidence and the kind of programming we did there. It would have been a dream to have that, but even in my day. But, it, but even with all the wonderful things you have from technology today and uh, chemical analysis, et cetera, you still have to have someone that can put the daggone case together. Right. And, it's, and when you're dealing with human beings... You need trained investigators that know how to relate to people, how to how to manage a significant case, manage all the physical evidence, as well as the investigative aspect of it. I know in my case, we didn't have a lot of physical 
evidence and laboratory stuff to deal with because it didn't exist. Right. So we we were the old style uh, gumshoe cops. And that's but, uh, that's the, where I came from. That was it, it's solved by lots and lots of legwork, knocking on doors and talking to people. We used to always say cases weren't solved from inside the building; they were solved on the streets. That's right. And we, uh, I would imagine, our careers mirrored one another in the fact that informants, in many cases, whether it be a relative or whether it be a dope dope dealer informant, you had to still use a lot of the same skills to get that someone trusting enough of you to talk to you. Right. And, uh, and just, so it didn't matter what it was. We tried to employ pretty much the same tactics over and over, and that's about relating to people, even people that you may not prefer to relate to, but you do because that's what you need to do to solve the crime. You had to. Police cases aren't made by talking to altar boys. They are made by talking with people who, some of them are, they're drug addicted. Uh, if it wasn't for drug addiction or uh, alcoholism or other things, they would never be in trouble a day in their life. And then there's other ones who are just career criminals. But they can all be good sources of information. And one of the best sources of information during my career are, are, were prostitutes because they were always on the street and they saw everything. They didn't miss a lick. You know, that that's, it goes back, back to a really old saying in the Fundamentals of Criminal Investigation, one of the first investigation book I ever read in the 60s on the front page that said in French, Chazere la femme, seek the women. Understand that women are often uh, in, in uh, the hardcore criminal cases uh, with drugs and uh, or some sort of organized crime or whatever. The woman will often have the inside story on what's really going on with the, the participants in the, in the criminal enterprise. But in general, in general, you're right, prostitutes, uh, especially in my day when there was a lot of that active on the street, it was important because even though they may be out there for their single purpose, they hear more than I could oh, yeah. ever dream of hearing. Yeah, and they, they, if they saw it, it, it all depended on how you treated them. One of the things that these always drill into my head as a young police was you treat everybody with respect until they change the tone of the conversation. Uh, and that was like rule number one, especially when you're dealing with people who work the streets uh, that lived a dangerous lifestyle because A, they can provide useful information to you, and B, sometimes your life might depend on them coming to help you. Absolutely. It's happened in both cases for me. That's for darn sure. I've, I've had and, uh, street walkers that turn up, most of them were men, dressed as women. Uh, most of the prostitutes were male. Uh, and people sometimes think just because that's the case that they can't fight. Well, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Thank goodness they could because they saved my life. Yeah, and carry some weapons too. Right? Yes, they do. Yeah, uh, now, speaking that. of weapons, this man's weapon of choice until the end was a shotgun. That poses a lot of difficulties for investigators. Uh, <laughs> if you don't have spent brass or shotgun rounds, you've got very little physical evidence to go against. Yeah, that's what happened with the Midnight Slayer. I mean, you know, yeah, we might find a... Uh, Shell casing, because sometimes you'd fire, fire multiple shots. But again, uh, you're not going to get that much out of that. And we, you know, even finding the wadding inside of a victim's chest um, may or may not pre- provide any real help because you still don't have a lot of the really good forensic out of that. No, and, and most of that shotgun weapon, especially using mixed loads, different kinds of loads, you could buy them at sporting goods stores. You could buy them back in the day when Sears was available, Walmart. It, it, 12-gauge shotgun rounds are everywhere. Right. Yeah, you hear all the issues about gun control and things like that today and the federal forms we use to buy, legally buy firearms. And uh, the Midnight Slayer bought a new shotgun when he finally wore his other one out. 
And, of course, uh, he lied all over the form. And, of course, in those days, it was all handled by paper and pickups once a week by AT&F at the dealers. There was no computerization of the record. So um, it was just there. I just discovered it later on. And you, when there's no one would have known, was there anything that that he may have left breadcrumbs or, or there was moments yeah. later on you go, oh, if we'd only picked up on that, we would have we'd have had a much earlier. No, we, we went backwards and could not find any noticeable missed lead. We all believed that. In fact, I didn't realize how much had happened prior to this his time until we started digging back through the book and what went on during the riots and how all this built up. The, and I didn't realize the role of the FBI, of course. And in the early days of the investigation of the Midnight Slayer, the, uh, they some leads were... Uh, probably um, nothing seemed to exist when it comes to that. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons you go back and look is that's how we learn to get better at our job. And, and people that follow us uh, learn from what we do and say, oh, here's something we could, we should have noticed or could have noticed. We, we need to pay attention to that in the future. But there was none of that going on. No, and the usual, the usual thing happens that we still see today. Even when we went back and talked to his former employers after he murdered Dr. Glatt, uh, they said, well, he was a pretty dependable guy. He was always here, and he never caused a problem, and he was just always quiet. Uh, he seemed okay to us. Yeah. never. Well, they always say, uh, I never saw, usually they say, I never saw any signs that indicate he'd go off. He was such a good kid, such a good guy. Then there's other yeah. ones that go, this guy was a ticking time bomb, and you ask yourself, why didn't you say something? Yeah. But there was none of that with I, this guy. Yeah, that just... I, I guess a lot of people might be reluctant to say, yeah, I really noticed it and blew it. I don't, I don't think many people want to admit that. Is there something that we can learn from investigating Midnight Slayer that will apply that other investigators uh, on the job now can use? Or even people listening say, hey, you need to be on the lookout for these sorts of behaviors. Being, a, being a, the best student you can be of human behavior, especially when you're dealing with witnesses and complainants, and uh, informants, you know, the better you can be at understanding human behavior and uh, trying to determine the veracity of a particular person you're dealing with. Cops are good at that almost naturally after a few years on the street, but you can actually hone those skills even more. And uh, detectives like my friend Doyle Burke and, and many of the others that I, I was blessed to work with over many, many years are just terrific cops. They had that particular skill. And the other thing I always saw in the crew that I had that I loved the most, they never gave up. They never gave up. I don't care if they were hunting hobos along the railroad. They would go 100 miles to try to you know, inter- interview every daggone hobo they could find. And that's the way it was with the people I worked with. They were they literally like were dogs with a bone. They're not giving it up. Uh, it doesn't mean they solved every case, but they certainly tried. They put it in every effort they could. Before we wrap it up, again, give the title of the book and where people can get more information and purchase the book. It's called Blood in the Streets, Racism, Riots, and Murders in the Heartland of America. And you can get it at Amazon.com and just about any book outlet there is. And now that's written by you and your wife. Right. That sounds like a topic for a radio show in the future. Okay, well, be just, glad to do that. Yeah, have, have her come on. And uh, you know, that's a segment that people really don't get to hear about. Rarely you get to hear from uh, law enforcement people beyond the quotes in the newspaper. But we almost never hear 
from their spouses what it was like to deal with someone, especially when they worked homicide for many years and all that entails. So please tell her I said thank you and uh, invite her to come on the show sometime in the future. All right. Thank you, John. Dan Baker, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Day show. Very much appreciated. Thank you. If you want to be a guest on the show, just contact us. The easiest way is go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, the Contact Us tab. Send an email to me, jay at lawenforcementtoday.com, or robert at lawenforcementtoday.com. You can also send a message via Facebook. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.